Well, we're going to look at that passage that we read earlier. So if we can, with the Lord's help, turn back to 1 Samuel chapter 4. 1 Samuel chapter 4. And if we read again at verse 21. 1 Samuel chapter 4 and verse 21. And she, that is Phineas's wife, who was giving birth, she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God had been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. She named the child Ichabod. She named the child Ichabod. Now, as a parent, uh, I found that one of the most difficult things about having a child is giving that child a name. Because once you give them a name, well, they have it for life, unless, of course, they really want to change their name. Uh, when David, our eldest, was born, we were so sure that it was going to be a girl that we didn't even have a boy's name in mind. We only had a girl's name. We didn't know it was going to be a, we didn't know that David was going to be a boy. We didn't find out beforehand. And so when David was born, he was such a surprise, it took us nearly 10 days to give him a name. And we settled on the name David, which means beloved. Something similar happened with Matthew. You would have thought we would have learned our lesson by then. But something happened, something similar happened with Matthew because this time we knew that Matthew was going to be a boy, and yet throughout Alison's pregnancy, we kept calling him Murdo John, all the way through the pregnancy. And then when he was born, well, he didn't look like a Murdo John. So we thought, we can't call him Murdo John. And again, it took us a few days to come up with another name, to come up with the name Matthew, which means gift of God. And that's a thing. We give a child a name, either because we like the name or we like the meaning of the name, or the child is named after someone in our family, whether it's a parent or a grandparent or a sibling. I was named after the Melbus Bard. Many of you will know this. I was named uh, after the Melbus Bard, Murdo McFarlane, because Murdo was very close to my father. And now I'm Murdo McFarlane Campbell, but in name only. I don't have the gift of Gaelic, as you all know, and I certainly don't have the gift of writing poetry or songs. But as you know, names are important, and that's certainly true in the Bible. Because when we come to the Bible, we see the first man was Adam. And he was named Adam because the name Adam means man. And that's what Adam was. He was the first man. The name Eve means mother of all living because she was the first woman. The name Samuel, we're focusing in the book of Samuel. The name Samuel means asked of God because Hannah asked God for a son. And she gave him a son called Samuel. And as you know, the name Jesus, a name we're all familiar with, the name Jesus means salvation or savior, because the angel said to Mary, call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. But all these names that we've mentioned, they're all, well, popular names or well-known names. But as you know, there are lots of peculiar names nowadays. There are very peculiar names nowadays, especially with all the celebrities. I'm not going to name or mention any names just in case I offend someone but when Isaiah had a son, I don't know if you know the name of Isaiah's son, he gave him a very peculiar name, Mahar Shalal Hashbaz. That was his name, Mahar Shalal 
hashbats. It should be very hard to call him in for dinner at night. Hosea also had three children. Hosea had three children who had peculiar names. The eldest son was called Jezreel, which means God sows judgment. He had a daughter. She was called Loruhama, which means not loved. And then the other son, he had a third son called Loami, which means not my people. So you had three children, one called God sows judgment, not loved, and not my people. Not very nice names to give to your children. But these names all had a meaning and they all had a message. And that's what we see with this child here, named at the end of 1 Samuel chapter 4. This child was given a name that would be remembered for generations to come. And the child, we're told, there in verse 21, she named the child Ichabod. Very unusual name. She named the child Ichabod, which means the glory has departed. The glory of God has departed. It has left us. Ichabod. The glory has departed. In fact, the name Ichabod, you could say it actually describes and defines all that happens in this chapter. The glory is departing. All that happens in this chapter can be defined by the name Ichabod. Because what we see in this chapter, in in 1 Samuel chapter 4, what we see is, first of all, an imaginary God and an Ichabod glory. An imaginary God and an Ichabod glory. There are two headings this morning. An imaginary God, that's the first heading. An imaginary God. Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. So the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. Now, as you'd expect, the narrative of chapter 4, it just picks up where we left off. Because as we saw last week in chapter 3, Samuel was called to be a prophet. He was called to be a prophet during some of the darkest days in Israel's history. And it was a tough and it was a a turbulent transition period in Israel. Because it was a, a transition from the period of the judges, where every man did what's right in his own eyes. And it was a transition from the period of the judges now into the period of the prophets. And in many ways, Samuel was the last judge and the first prophet in Israel. He had a twofold role. He was the last judge and the first prophet in Israel. But as you can see, that wasn't without its challenges. Because as a young prophet, a very young prophet, in fact, Samuel's role and his responsibility was to preach and to proclaim the Lord's message. That was his role. That was his responsibility. He was to tell the people what God had to say. He had to proclaim the Lord's message and what a message it was. Because if you go to the previous chapter, you remember last week, we read there chapter 3, verse 11. The Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day, I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I'm about to punish his house forever. 
for the iniquity that he knew, because his sons were blaspheming God, and he did not restrain them. Therefore I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. So when the Lord called Samuel to be a prophet, the first challenge Samuel had was to tell the truth, and to tell the truth about sin and about judgment. And it's that prophecy which is now fulfilled here in this chapter. Because as you know, Eli, Eli is the old priest, and he had two sons. He has two sons called Hophni and Phinehas. But Eli's sons, even though they were sons of the manse, they had grown up in the manse, you could say. They were set apart and sanctified to the holy office of the priesthood, just like their dad. And yet Hophni and Phinehas, as we've discovered, they were wolves in shepherds' clothing. They wore all the clerical clothing. They served at the sanctuary, but they were corrupt clergy. They used and abused their position and their power as priests in order to gain more and more possessions. Hophni and Phinehas, you could say, they were men that misrepresented God and they misled the people. They misled the people. They misrepresented the God they were meant to serve, and they misled the people to worship what was an imaginary God. And that's what we should see in the first half of this chapter. Not that God is imaginary, but that the God that they worshipped, or that Israel were led to worship, was a God of their own making. It was a God of their own imagination, not the God of the Bible, not the God who had revealed himself to his people throughout history. Because as we read, the Israelites went to battle with the Philistines. And the Philistines, we read there, they were a fearful and a formidable force. In fact, during the period of the judges, the Israelites were under the force of the Philistines for 40 years. They were oppressed by the Philistines for 40 years until the Lord raised up, you remember that strong man, Samson. And Samson, he freed Israel from the Philistines. And so since the time of Samson, which is generations from after this point, Israel had been free. They had been free from the formidable and the fearful force of the Philistines until one day, this one day where Israel foolishly decides to fight against the Philistines. And, you know, I have no doubt, reading this passage, that it was probably Hophni and Phinehas who put them up to it. Because as priests of the people, as the clergy in their community and in their congregation of Israel, Hophni and Phinehas, you would expect these priests, Hophni and Phinehas would have been seen as trustworthy men. They would have been seen as truthful men just because of the office they held and the position that they had. So much so that whatever these men taught and whatever they told the people of Israel, the people would have just believed it. They're men of God. They they would never lie to us. So the people just did exactly what they wanted. They would have taken Hophni and Phinehas at their word and done whatever they wished. And so if Hophni and Phinehas had encouraged the Israelites to fight against the Philistines by telling them that the Lord will be with you, the Lord will be with you on the battlefield, the Israelites would have thought, well, they're telling the truth. They're God's men. So let's go and let's fight. But as we read, Israel was defeated by the fearful and formidable force of the Philistines. And 4,000, 4,000 men 
died on the field of battle. Then you read the response. The response of the elders in, uh, the elders in Israel is remarkable. Because we see that instead of realizing that their defeat was because of their disobedience against the Lord, because the Lord had, the Lord had promised his people, he had said to them in both the books of Exodus and the book of, of Deuteronomy, uh, the book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, that disobedience against the Lord will end in defeat. It will end in disaster. It will end in death. But instead of clocking God's word, the elders concluded that their defeat was because they didn't do something. They thought, we didn't take the Ark of the Covenant with us into battle. That's why we lost. And so they think, we need the Ark of the Covenant to come with us. So we need to take revenge. Let's not hold back. Let's go straight back to the battlefield and take the Ark of the Covenant with us. Let's respond by seeking revenge. Look at verse 3. When the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel, they said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. And, you know, you read this, and it ought to remind us, I suppose, straight away, the responsibility, the role and responsibility of every elder. Because as elders, just like it was for the elders of Israel, as elders, we're to lead by our life. We're to lead by our life, and we're to teach the truth of God's Word by our life. We're to tell people what they need to hear not always what they want to hear. That's what these elders remind me. They, they didn't take their role and responsibility seriously. But we do. We need to take our role and responsibility seriously. We need to tell people what they need to hear, not always what they want to hear. But for the ministers and the elders in Israel, they had misinformed the people. They had misled the people. They had misled them so far into the battlefield and now they have a view of God like a genie in a bottle. And they treat all the things of God like lucky charms. Because you look at it and you see that they think, well, if we, if we do this, God will give us what we want, when we want, and how we want. If we take the Ark of the Covenant into the battlefield, God will make us win. He will do what we want, when we want, and how we want. And God will do it for us because we have the Ark of the Covenant. We have this lucky charm. We have the symbol of God's presence and God's power. Therefore, God has to do what we want because his name is at stake. God has to preserve us on the field of battle. He has to protect us from hurt or harm because if he doesn't, no one will believe in him. No one will trust him. No one will follow him. He will look like a little God that nobody would want to trust in. And you know, my friend, you look at it and you read this passage and maybe you think, well, what does this have to do with us in the 21st century? But I look at this passage and all I see is what Solomon says to us. There is nothing new under the sun. Because many people today 
sad to say it, they still treat God like the genie in the bottle. And they treat the things of God like lucky charms, thinking that, well, if I do certain things, God will always be there for me. And God will give me what I want, when I want, and even how I want. So if I carry my Bible in my work bag for going offshore, and or if I read my Bible every night, or if I repeat a prayer that I learned as a child, or if I attend church once a week, or if I wear Christian jewelry around my neck, then the Lord is obligated. There's nothing wrong with doing any of these things, by the way. But we might think that the Lord is obligated to protect me and to preserve me from hurt or from harm. And he has to do it. Because if God doesn't do it for me, then I won't believe in him. I won't trust him. I won't follow him. No, no, I don't want him. If he doesn't do what I want, I don't want him. And you know, my friend, if that's the way you think, then you worship an imaginary God. You worship an imaginary God. As Dale Ralph Davis said in his commentary, that is not faith. It is all superstition. And when we operate in this way, our concern is not to seek God, but to control him. Not to submit to God, but to use him. We prefer religious magic to spiritual holiness. We are interested in success, but not repentance. And you know, so many people say to me, and they probably say it to me because I'm the minister, they say to me, I believe in God. Where do I believe in God? I believe that God exists. I think Jesus is real. The Bible is true. Christianity, well, it must be genuine. And yet, despite all that, they live their life like an atheist. They live their life like an atheist. And I say that because their belief in God, it actually has no impact upon them. It has no influence upon their life. It has no bearing upon everything around them. It doesn't change the way they live their life because they continue to live their life as if God didn't exist. They continue to make decisions without God. They continue to think without God. They continue to go through struggles without God. And that's because their belief in God is not genuine. He's a God of their imagination. He's an imaginary God. You know, it was R.C. Sproul. I love R.C. Sproul. He's a lovely Presbyterian man. Uh, He said, a God who is all love, all grace, all mercy, but no sovereignty, no justice, no holiness, and no wrath. That God, he says, is an idol. A God who is all love, all grace, all mercy, but no sovereignty, no justice, no holiness, and no wrath is an idol. He's an imaginary God. He's the God of our imagination. I was reading someone And it's so applied to this passage because in our our casual and consumeristic, you could call it cafe Christianity, where we pick and choose the bits we like and we leave the rest out. So many people view God as like a waiter in a restaurant. So many people view God like a waiter in a restaurant where you don't really know the waiter that well. You only met him on the way in. Or maybe you've been to the restaurant a couple of times and you've seen him there. You've got to know him a wee bit, but you don't know much about him. 
That's as far as it goes. You don't know him enough to invite him to sit at your table with you. You don't know him enough to eat a meal with him, or even to take part in all your personal conversations about life and work and friends and family. This waiter is not involved in your day-to-day life, because as the waiter, he's just there in the background. He's in the background waiting on you to see if you need something, and so that he can serve you when you want him and when you need him. And when you do call on him, whether it's something you want or it's a mess that's on in your life, there's something that's spilled all over the table, you call on him and he comes running over. Or whether you call on him and you, you ask for success and health and healing and wisdom to be handed to you on the plate. Whatever it is, he's meant to go out of his way to get for you and get, to give to you because you pay him. You pay him. You pay him with your tithe and you pay him with your time in church on Sunday. Therefore, you own him and he owes you. He's the God of our imagination. He's an imaginary God. Because when it comes to sin, when it comes to honesty, when it comes to purity, when it comes to obedience, when it comes to submission, when it comes to worship, when it comes to judgment, that's not the God we want. Find me another waiter. I don't want him. We don't want a God that makes demands on our life. We want a God that will follow our demands. And that's what Israel was doing here. Let's bring the Ark of the Covenant to the battlefield because God will be on our side. We can demand that God will be on our side. And that's the God we want. We want to make demands on God. We don't want God to make demands on us. But you know what? My good friend J.C. Ryle, he always has a word for everything. He says, beware of manufacturing a God of your own. Beware of manufacturing a God of your own. A God who is all mercy but not just. A God who is all love but not holy. A God who has a heaven for everyone but a hell for no one. Such a God, he says, is an idol of your own making. He's not the God of the Bible, because other than the God of the Bible, there is no God at all. And that's what we'll see as we come to the next chapter. Other than the God of the Bible, there is no God at all. You know, my friend, beware of worshipping the God of your own imagination, because it it will only end one way. It will only end one way. How did it end for Israel? Defeat, disaster and death. That's how it ended. Verse 10, so the Philistines fought. Israel was defeated. They fled every man to his home. There was a very great slaughter for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas died. 34,000 men died in these opening verses of chapter 4. And they all died because they made an imaginary God. They worshipped the God of their imagination and not the God of the Bible. And so in the first half of the chapter, we see an imaginary God. But then in the second half of the chapter, we see an Ichabod glory. An Ichabod glory. 
Look at verse 12. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day, with his clothes torn, with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road, watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, What is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, How did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines. And there was also a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the ark of God has been captured. And we read there that as soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backwards from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken and he died. For the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel for 40 years. On the day that Israel was defeated by the fearful and formidable force of the Philistines, Eli the priest, this man who was 98 years old, Although he was blind now, he had seen a lot in his life. And he had seen the demise and even the degeneration of the spiritual state of his own nation. And even though Eli would have claimed that his sons, they were to blame. They were the ones in charge. They were the ones leading the church and the congregation. They were to blame. Even though Eli would have claimed that his sons were to blame. If you look at the previous chapter, the prophecy, God put the blame squarely at Eli's feet. Because as a priest for 40 years, Eli knew that it was wrong for Hophni and Phinehas to get involved in the battle with the Philistines. Even more so, Eli knew that it was blasphemy to ever think of taking the Ark of the Covenant, this box, this holy box that defined and described God's presence and God's power, even the thought of it to take it into the battlefield with them. But sadly, you look at Eli, and Eli was a, a parent who stayed silent. He didn't say anything to his sons. He didn't stop his sons. He didn't teach or tell his children what to do. He didn't restrain or restrict his children, or even those who were in office with him. He didn't say anything. He was silent. And instead, Eli let his sons live lawless lives before the Lord. Eli let his sons live lawless lives before the Lord. And I look at it, and it really challenges me, because the Lord is reminding Eli, you failed as a father. You failed as a father. Because what we see is that Eli's failure to teach his children in private, it had consequences in public. Eli's failure to teach his children in private had consequences in public. Now, that's not to say that every child that disobeys their parents is because the parent is wrong. But what the Lord is saying to Eli in this passage is that Eli was wrong. And he's reminding him of his covenant responsibility as a covenant parent with covenant children. Eli has been reminded that he has failed to teach his children at home. And that has had, con that has had consequences, not only in the congregation, but also for the whole country. And you know, even with all his years of experience as a priest and a pastor in Israel, you come to this chapter and you realize none of it mattered. 
None of his experience mattered because what Eli was in his public life, among the congregation and among the community, it was never and it was nowhere near as important as what he was in his private life among his family. And you know, I find it so challenging for me, even as a minister, in his public life, among the congregation, among the community, it it never mattered. wasn't as important as what he was in his private life among his family. And if it reminds me, it ought to remind you and reaffirm to us as parents and as Christians that what we are in public must also be what we are in private. What we are in public must also be what we are in private. Because we have a massive role and a massive responsibility to not only have a relationship with our children, which is so important, but also to teach them and to tell them and to train them as our children, to train them about the truth of the Lord and about how to live lives before the Lord. Do you know, our Bible has such an emphasis on this, massive emphasis. It exhorts us to train up a child the way that they should go so that when they're old, they will not depart from it. Train up a child in the way that they should go so that when they are old, they will not depart from it. Now, I know we all fail and we all faint as parents. I'm not getting at you. I'm reminding myself of our responsibility, of what we are in public. We must also be in private. And you you look at this and it was a sad end for Eli. It was a sad end for his sons because it shows us that You know, it shows us we never sin in isolation because our sins always impact other people. We never sin in isolation. Our sins always impact other people. And we see that because towards the end of the chapter, Phineas' wife, she's heavily pregnant at the time. When she hears the news that her husband has died on the battlefield, her brother-in-law, Hophni and Phineas, they've both died on the battlefield and her father-in-law has now fallen over and broken his neck. There's so much sorrow. There's so much stress of the situation. And it sends her into early labor. And as we read through the passage towards the end of the chapter, this mourning mother who gives birth to to a son, her dying words, her dying words describe the whole chapter. Call his name Ichabod, the glorious departed. Call his name Ichabod, because the glory has departed. Dale Ralph Davis, he says, Phineas's wife taught more theology in her death than Phineas had taught in his whole life as a priest. Call his name Ichabod, because the glory has departed. The people have forsaken the Lord. They've turned their back on the Lord. They viewed, they worship an imaginary God, and they view God as a lucky charm. Ichabod, the glorious departed. And as we said, it was a name that would be remembered for generations because the name Ichabod, it describes what happens in this chapter and the impact of this chapter. We see it in the following chapters as we'll go through them in the coming weeks. But you know, what I love about our Bible, and I hope you all love the Bible, what I love about the Bible is even though we see in this chapter that 
A son was born. They called his name Ichabod because the glory has departed. When you read through the Bible, you follow the narrative, the story of salvation through this Bible, and it's leading us one way. It's leading us to a manger in Bethlehem. And it's reminding us that when Jesus was born, the angel said, call his name Jesus. Call him salvation. Call him Savior, because he shall save his people from their sins. And as the Apostle John explains to us in his gospel, the opening verses of his gospel, the birth of Jesus was the occasion, not when the glory of God departed from us. No, no, no. The birth of Jesus was when the glory of God dwelt among us. The glory of God dwelt among us. John tells us the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Why? So that we would behold His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So even though we see here glory departing, it should point us forward to when glory dwells among his people. Call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And you know, the wonder of who Jesus is and his name, we're talking about the importance of names earlier on. The Bible tells us there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved other than the name of Jesus. Because it will be at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, whosoever calls upon the name of Jesus will be saved. That's the beauty of the gospel, even in the Old Testament. Whosoever calls upon the name of Jesus will be saved. But may the Lord bless these thoughts to us. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we give thanks to thee for thy word that speaks to us so powerfully, a word that is living and active, a word that reminds us that we are not to worship the God of our imagination, but the God who has revealed himself to us in the pages of the Bible, a God who has made himself known through creation and through Scripture. And help us, Lord, we pray, to worship him aright, to follow him with all our heart, to seek him even while he is to be found. And, Lord, that we would see that the glory of God has dwelt among us in the person of Jesus, and that whosoever calls upon his name, they will be saved. Help us to see then that the name of Jesus, it endures forever. It lasts like the sun itself, Keep us then, we pray. Bless thy truth to us, we ask. And forgive us, we plead, for Jesus' sake. Amen. We're going to bring our service to a conclusion today by singing the words of Psalm 72. Psalm 72 in the Scottish Psalter, page 314. Psalm 72. We're singing from verse 17. Uh, down to the end of the psalm. Uh, familiar words. But our f- familiarity of them should never bring contempt 
should make us love them more and more. Because they're words that remind us all about Jesus and his name. His name, it says, forever shall endure, last like the sun it shall. Men shall be blessed in him and blessed. All nations shall him call. Now blessed be the Lord our God, the God of Israel, for he alone doth wondrous works in glory that excel. Down to the end of the psalm. So Psalm 72 from verse 17 to the end of the psalm. We'll stand to sing, if you're able, to God's praise. His name forever shall fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all now and forevermore. Amen.